1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Ontario's COVID vaccine certificate program began on Wednesday, requiring proof of double vaccination in order to be let inside restaurants, gyms and other non-essential venues. So on Thursday, Fightback checked in with some representatives of the business community to find out how it was going. Many had concerns at the beginning, how to handle angry, non-vax customers who would be denied access. They also wondered, would they be responsible if they let fraudulent certificates through? And would they need extra staff to handle the new requirements when so many are already facing staff shortages? Libby welcome Jim Solomon, founder and CEO of Hone Fitness in Toronto, and Larry Isaacs, president of the Firkin Group of Pubs.
2: Restaurants were notified late in the program of how this is going to work. And the fact that the certification has come out earlier than the app, has been a huge challenge for us. We are being put in a position at our front doors with young hostesses who don't understand necessarily everything about vaccinations and are being challenged by numbers of guests who are asking to get in and and don't have the right documentation. Very challenging.
3: Did you have any trouble?
2: Uh, I, I don't want to say trouble, but we've had some guests that we've asked to leave and there's been frustration. And look, Let's be honest about it. The hospitality industry has been decimated now for 19 months, as well as gyms and other small businesses. And once again, we're not being able to use our word, hospitality. We have become the triage for COVID-19. We have to ask people to put on masks, move six feet apart, sit away, give me your name, where are you vaccinated? How are you supposed to say to people, hey, welcome, how are you doing? Come in and have a drink and something to eat. It's hurting the business. It shouldn't be put on the small business to manage this program.
3: Okay. Speaking of gyms, let us go to Jim Solomon. How is it going for you?
4: Well, let me start by saying Larry's right. Uh, you know, this, whatever it's been, 16, 19 months has been really hard on the gym business, I think. in Ontario included home Fitness, uh, the stops and the starts and the mass and everything has uh, turned people off. They've canceled. They've suspended their memberships. So, you know, in a big picture, uh, he's completely right. I don't think Hone's alone in in that trend. I think it's North American gyms. Uh, With that said, your question was yesterday. Uh, We were pretty well prepared. We're a little lucky compared to, I think, a restaurant where – the member already has their picture, their first, their last name, their address, their cell phone, and their email address in our system. So when they come uh, yesterday with the documentation, we, we check it and it's a little easier. And uh, we don't store it. We take a new picture uh, of, of the fact that we checked. So uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't too bad. There were people... You know, not realizing that yesterday they had a showed it, and then they you know had to move back or outside and find it on their phone and there are people who didn 't have it on their phone, uh, but we only in the seven gyms had one customer who was uh, unruly
3: Larry Isaacs. I know there are lots of people who weren 't keen to say "Go inside in a restaurant until This was put into effect. So uh, isn't there a positive bump as well?
2: Absolutely. But here's the challenge, Libby. One of the things that wasn't laid out was why were the staff not then forced to get vaccinated? (laughs) Good question. That's left again to the small business. You know, the government's got to step up here and say, look, if you're in a place where you cannot put on a mask, everybody in that space needs to have the vaccine. I'm not in charge of the vaccine program. I don't speak for it or against it. The bottom line, what we speak for, I say it again, we've been closed for 19 months. We have to get back to life. Businesses, The downtown in the pathway is like a morgue. There's no people. 19 months into a pandemic, how are people going to survive? The country cannot survive on government handouts forever. We need small businesses to reopen and employ people and get back to business. So the government needs to figure out the right way to make that happen. Can't Make that happen and make it happen soon.
1: Larry Isaacs, president of the Firkin Group of Pubs and Jim Solomon, founder and CEO of Hone Fitness in Toronto. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Thursday, Libby was also joined by Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown, who has been vocal in his concerns about funding for extra enforcement of the new Ontario Vaccine Certificate Program. He told Fight Back no details on this were provided before the launch.
5: Part out of frustration, when the provincial government announced their COVID uh, certification program, they said that if there was problems with compliance to call the local police or bylaw, well, our local police is already inundated with, with, with work. Frankly, we had two shootings last night in, in Brampton. Um, right now, we already have to prioritize and tier um, uh, police calls. And so just like in most municipalities, police don't have the resources right now to respond to minor offenses. And so if there's a car theft or uh, a minor burglary, they generally say report it to insurance because they're trying to, um, manage the, the lack of, of of human resources in in policing. So I know our local police have said they don't have the resources to enforce this and won't be. Our bylaw department right now, sixty percent of their time is already preoccupied with um, with dealing with uh, COVID issues. They've got important work on property safety issues and standards, uh, animal safety issues. So we're taking them away from their original work. And just today at regional council, we learned from our medical officer of health that our public health department is going to be in deficit because of this COVID certification program because the public health inspectors are are um, consumed by having to deal with this as well. And so it's one thing to have a program, but there has to be a follow-through on how it's going to be enforced and, and to allocate resources for that. And too often with government programs, it's announced in Ottawa or announced at Queen's Park but it's put on the back of municipalities. And under the Ontario Municipal Act, we're not allowed to run a deficit. I don't want to run a deficit, but we're not even legally allowed to. And so right now we're looking at public health having a deficit. We're looking at bylaw having a deficit. We're looking at the police if they, if they had to allocate resources for this. They'd be in deficit. And so there has, this has to be reconciled. I know during the federal election campaign, the prime minister pledged a billion dollars to the provinces for their vaccine certification programs there's a portion of that's going to have to come to municipalities. uh, Otherwise, we're simply passing the cost to property taxpayers who already have too much uh, uh, responsibility. Um, In terms of bylaw, we did hire 10 additional bylaw officers at the beginning of the pandemic to help us deal with the enforcement of the public health protocols. Um, And we could do that again, um, and, and we could get them trained quickly. But who's paying for that? You know, I, I just find everything goes in your property tax bill. And, you know, municipalities have the smallest budget. Uh, and too often everything, you, you know, it just gets passed down.
3: You know, nobody really likes this, but uh, people think this is going to help avoid another lockdown. Are, are, are you confident? And it's also made a lot of people get vaccinated. Uh, so what about the good side of this? Or is there one?
5: The good side is there's a lot more vaccinations happening. That's positive. Um, and the reason I believe it's positive is I look at our hospital. You know, we measured uh, June, July earlier, 101 out of 103 uh, hospitalizations were people who are unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. Right now in our ICU, when I get the weekly report, it's almost entirely individuals who are unvaccinated. And so, um, it, it it helps. The you know, vaccinations help keep our community safe. It help us get out of this pandemic. And if there are tools that encourage vaccinations, that is that is helpful. Um, and so that, that is a silver lining. The more people get vaccinated, the less people are going to be in hospital and we're not going to see our hospitals overrun. I, when we saw the provincial government issue lockdown orders last year, it, it was, you know, really because they didn't want to see our hospitals overrun. It was about protecting hospital capacity. And so right now our our hospital capacity is pretty good. And so I don't envision the need for lockdowns, I don't think we need to have more lockdowns and, uh, and you know, I'd, I'd advocate against it.
1: Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown in conversation with Libby Snymer on Thursday. I'm Jane Brown and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, Aaron O'Toole should watch his back. You're
0: listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Pat from Toronto phoned about the submarine deal and its effect on Canada
4: we shouldn't be talking about nuclear submarines. We haven't got the money nor the expertise. Uh, And the reality is 90% of us live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. So we have to depend on the U.S. But, you know, the really sad part is that the two Michaels are not being viewed as important as the trade we have with China. And that is the sad part. I mean, we could put Uh, all sorts of restrictions, because we probably buy a lot more from China than they buy from us. But that's not considered to be worth it. Um, Rather, we just let the two Michaels sit in jail. It's not fair.
1: Janet in Ajax phoned about her experience at a restaurant after the vaccine certificate program went into effect.
6: We were in uh, Denny's restaurant in Niagara Falls yesterday, went there for lunch. And I took my phone out to show my vaccine. They said, no, we don't have to do that. And I said, yes, it's the law. No, my boss says we don't have to.
3: Really? And w- that was on the Canadian side? Oh, yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. She and I, and I asked her again. I said, why
6: does your boss think he doesn't have to? I don't know. I just do my job.
1: Jerry and Scarborough phoned about inconsistencies in the vaccine passport system.
6: I drive trucks
2: and I'm going into factories and places where the people inside are not wearing masks, but I have to wear a mask to go through the door. Otherwise, I can't get into the building. And now with I have to show proof of being vaccinated, which I am. What about the people I'm confronting inside that i got to deal with? Who's regulating the employees inside where I, people like myself have to go in and be confronted by somebody not wearing a mask, and I have to wear a mask? Yeah. Somewhere along the line, the logistics just don't seem to balance.
0: And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Carolyn in Halliburton, who phoned with some optimism about her experience with the federal election.
6: I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to work um, uh, one of our local polls. I was so pleased and happy that there were so many young people that came out, many of them for the very first time. The registration desk was busy from dawn to dusk with new voters registering. Plus, I talked to a whole lot of people who had not voted in years and were coming back to make a statement. And then I look at the results which say the PC's got the popular vote. And this is something that has always perplexed me. The popular vote does not dictate who the government is. So looking down the road a little bit, what does that really mean? All these people that voted for the first time, came out after many years, and their vote, does it count? With our current system where popular vote does not dictate the government, um, I question that a little.
1: I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeeb Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zuma Radio.
1: Welcome back. It didn't take long after the federal election for some members of the federal conservative party to start questioning the future of Aaron O'Toole's leadership. Less than 48 hours after a minority liberal government was called, Bert Chen, a senior member of the Conservatives National Council, started a petition calling for a review of O'Toole's leadership earlier than scheduled in 2023, saying O'Toole has broken their trust. At the same time, other party members argue Aaron O'Toole did a good job and that the only way to attain power is to tack to the center on various issues. Aaron O'Toole himself has repeatedly mentioned the possibility of another election within 18 months presumably an argument for keeping him as leader. David Tarrant is a conservative strategist and vice president of National Strategic Communications at Enterprise. He joined Libby on Thursday.
7: After any time an election ends in defeat and disappointment, I think there's always going to be a case where people are are angry and uh, want to kind of take out their frustration on whoever the leader of the day is. At the same time, I want to be clearly that that's not a blanket endorsement of of Mr. O'Toole getting a second chance at this. Mr. O'Toole has some very serious questions he needs to answer, and the party already has mechanisms that will force him to actually face accountability for the the, the decisions he made and the mistakes he made uh, for for members to judge. So, uh, you know, I would much rather see that process play itself out which may or may not result in Mr. O'Toole getting a second second uh, chance. But I don't think kind of the, the grandstanding of public petitions uh, does anybody in the conservative party any good right now. The real issue here is for, for, for that, that kind of complicates things here for conservatives that your clip from Mr. Chen kind of at the beginning showed, it was not just a disappointment. It was the, the bargain, for want of a better word, that Mr. O'Toole made with so many conservatives where he basically said, um, I'm going to compromise slash capitulate on a number of issues that are near and dear to many of our members, whether there's a concerns of social conservatives, whether it's issues of conservatives who oppose a carbon tax, because this is the way in which we need, it's is the only way we can win power and get closer to government. Uh, and, and members said, okay, let's, we'll do it your way. Uh, and then he went out and he underperformed compared to Andrew Shear. I think that is actually the hardest question that Mr. O'Toole needs to answer. But we don't need a petition right now to answer that. Like, there's going to be mechanisms in caucus, and that's the next leadership review at the next sort of convention where he will have to face those questions. So, like I say, this is not a blank endorsement of O'Toole. I just think uh, there's a responsible way for parties to ask hard questions of the leaders that doesn't require this kind of grandstanding.
3: In 2019, Andrew Scheer uh, didn't have such a strong... People's Party of Canada, and uh, you know, it's it's hard to say that that's just because the Conservative Party tacked to the center. That's a whole lot of you know anger and frustration and disaffection, uh, you know, that probably has more to do with the pandemic than than with the ideology.
7: There's two broad theories about where the PPC draws its supporters from. Uh and it's not it's not It's not like you have to choose it's a continuum. But one is um that the right hand side of the conservative blue tent, as Mr. O'Toole was trying to get more kind of moderates or centrists in, he lost votes on his right to the PPC and his specific to conservatives. There's probably some truth to that. Um there's also some truth to the fact that Maxime Bernier and people uh, map of Maxime Bernier is he's an opportunistic dilettante. Right. Like he's like, you know, there's 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 there's, there's you know, he'll jump on whatever way he thinks and get Maxine Bernie more attention that he all of a sudden hopped on uh, a, a an immense anger uh, from a minority of the population who are vehemently opposed to public health measures, encouraging vaccines, whether it's mandates, whether it's vaccine passports, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Um, these people are these people have a deleterious impact on public they are not helpful. They are, they they will cost people lives, but they exist and they are real. And the People's Party was the only party who gave them a, a voice and a vehicle. If you if you subscribe to the theory that those people are the core of the PPC vote, well, then this is a moment in time, and the PPC will mercifully fade to irrelevance in time for the next election campaign. We hope. But at least some of them are probably lapsed conservatives, and the degree to which their support is lapsed conservatives is going to be a really important question for for Mr. O'Toole and other Conservatives to answer in the months ahead.
1: David Tarrant is a Conservative strategist and Vice President of National Strategic Communications at Enterprise. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. In the fallout of the federal election, one of the three defeated Cabinet Ministers, all women, by the way, is Deb Schultz, now the former Minister for Seniors. She was just the second minister for seniors, named by the Liberals. So should we just assume Prime Minister Trudeau will name another? And is the role even effective? Long-term care and health are provincial responsibilities, but the carnage from COVID-19 has advocates, stakeholders, and family members clamoring for national standards. There is actually a process in place to achieve national standards. One of the panelists involved is Dr. Tamara Daly, a York University professor and the director of the University's Center for Aging Research and Education. She joined Libby on Wednesday along with Jane Medes, staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly and NDP, MPP, and health critic, Frost Jelena.
8: Important seniors... Affair, very, very seldom make it to the top of the priority pile. And I mean, you've talked about what we've all witnessed during the pandemic uh, with the great majority of people dying were seniors. We are way off the charts compared to other developed countries in how poorly we did to protect our seniors, and many of them were in long-term care and in other congregate living. So for once, senior care made the top of the priority for every Ontarian. We all know we owe it to them to do better and it also hit the top of the pile for the priority pile for for the federal uh and canadian for a while uh, but it is hard to keep it there our uh, seniors are easy to forget they are easy to put behind i don't want it to be forgotten but i'm a bit worried yes
9: dr daly how do you see that uh, I would agree. I've always been worried about long-term care, to be honest. I think uh, long-term care in particular and seniors' care more broadly um, seems to be stuck in in what we might call a vicious policy cycle. And in part, that's because um, different levels of government have responsibility for it. It's also a highly um, commoditized space. So there's a lot of um, different players and different stakeholders that have uh, different levels of interest, including material interest or like um, large amounts of money that can be made. And uh, there's, there's frequently a lack of attention uh, paid to this space because we are generally thinking about care for those toward the end of their lives. And it's something that um, Canadians have often thought that this is a personal or a private household responsibility, as opposed to seeing the ways in which we need to think about how we're all in this together um, and that we owe and uh, we owe something to each other uh, to care for each other at the end of our lives. So this kind of wicked policy space or this vicious circle that we've been in, um, it looked as though um, one of the only good things that may have come out of COVID was this increased public attention on long-term care um, and uh, care for seniors. And I'm just worried uh, that uh, as we solve some of the problems uh, of COVID in particular, that we'll forget about the problems that already existed uh, for seniors' care in this country.
3: Jane Medes, now, do you have confidence that that when your work is done, it's, it's not just going to end up gathering dust like so many other reports that we love to do here in Canada?
10: Sure, and and I agree that that you know often what happens is that these reports do end up on the shelf. The difference here is that these are going to be standards that will be, uh, or guidelines that could be developed by to, into standards by Accreditation Canada, and you know many provinces already use those standards. So. It's something that actually has a potential of being utilized because it is meant to be, um, you know, used as opposed to just a policy report. So it's different. Um, and again, it, you know, with the, you know, as mentioned, you know, we've got this sort of national uh, provincial, municipal, you know, all sorts of different government levels. So it really is going to be, it remain to be seen, you know, who who takes up these accreditation, you know, who will follow them, who won't. And that will be the big thing. But certainly there, you know, many provinces do use them already. And so we would be hopeful that that would continue. We still have to, to watch, Um, you know, and I agree, unfortunately, in the past, we've had, you know, flare ups of different issues in long term care, and everyone says, oh, we're going to fix it, we're going to fix it. But as soon as it you know, sort of, um, you know, they've said that, then it, nothing ever happened. So I think that it, it, it's got to be kept in the public eye, and, and people have to demand for their MPs that they're going to have to move this forward.
1: Jane Midas, a staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, Dr. Tamara Daly, a York University professor and the director of the university's Centre for Aging Research and Education, and NDP, MPP, and health critic, Franz Jelena. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.